During this season of Lent, we are walking with Jesus along what has been called the way of the cross. And we began following him on that Thursday evening known as Maundy Thursday in that upper room where Jesus washed his disciples' feet and then instituted the supper that we will celebrate at the close of our time together. And at North Wake, the Lord's Supper is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who is currently walking in fellowship with him. And when we approach the table today, we'll come forward to the table, and I'd like to ask you um, to use this center aisle and the two aisles along the walls to approach the table, and then we'll use these two aisles to return to our seats, if you would, during that time. Last week, we saw Jesus travel um, from this upper room um, out across the Kidron Valley and up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he poured out his heart to his father in prayer, and the disciples fell asleep, not once, but three times. And then Judas arrived with a great crowd of armed soldiers and an assortment of religious leaders, and they arrested Jesus. His disciples fled, and they were taken then from the garden um, back down to the residence of the high priest, Caiaphas. There outside of that residence in the courtyard was where Peter, we saw last week, denied his, his Lord not once but three times saying, I don't know the man. And in just these few hours late on this Thursday night as we walk with Jesus, he has been deserted and denied and arrested and mocked and beaten and spat upon in his face. He has been interrogated and falsely accused. Luke said he was even blasphemed. The way of sorrows, some have called this path. I think it could also be called the way of love because the humble love of Jesus is on display all along the way. The Apostle Paul capsulized the life of Jesus in one little verse. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this little verse encapsulates the whole earthly life of Jesus as he humbly, lovingly takes the lowest place for our good. And on this night, we will follow Jesus along that humble, loving way. Um, And he will endure not one, but six different interrogations or trials, if you can call them that. And they run, these trials run throughout this Thursday night between midnight and about 6 a.m. Until he is convicted and flogged and made to carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, just outside the city. Where Mark tells us that it was about the third hour when they crucified him, 9 o'clock in the morning when it all comes to culmination. So this morning, I want to invite you to come and walk with Jesus throughout that Thursday night, throughout these trials as we follow him from one to the next to the next and see how he trusted his father and see how he loved us so. So bow with me, please, as we ready ourselves in prayer. Jesus, you know that we love you. Help us to love you more because of what we see today in your faithfulness and your humble love for us. And we ask this, Christ, in your great name. Amen. 
So we begin today, we're peering in from the courtyard outside the high priest's residence where Peter made his denials. Um, here, Jesus is to stand before Caiaphas, who is now the high priest. But first, he stands before a man named Annas. This is his first trial. He's the former high priest, Annas is, and he is Caiaphas, the current high priest's father-in-law. Though Annas was not the high priest officially, he seems to have continued to exert influence as a high priest through his progeny. Five of his sons and a grandson would follow him into the high priesthood, along with his son-in-law, Caiaphas, whom Luke... Um, refers to here in our passage today. Now apparently Annas kept his fingers in the pie of priesthood such that elsewhere Luke will refer to um, his priesthood with Caiaphas as one. This is the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Um, historians tell us um, that the house of Annas did not at all enjoy a good reputation with its contemporaries. People accused this priestly aristocracy, rather, quite generally, of bribing Roman power so that they were able to effectively purchase their high priestly offices, and then by guile and force were able to depose regular priests from their positions. People especially criticized the family of Annas because, as it appeared, by slick maneuvering, they seemed always to be accumulating wealth for themselves. This is the Herod or rather, this is the, the priest that Jesus stands before at the first of his six trials. And John records Jesus' interaction with Annas this way in John chapter 18. He says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, then why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we have this really curious exchange at Jesus' first trial between Annas and himself and this soldier or this officer who strikes him. And there's a couple of things that I just want to point out that kind of come up in this as I read it. Uh, the first is this. Who seems to be in charge here? As you read this story, who seems to be in charge who seems to be driving the direction of the conversation and even prevailing in the debate that's going on? See, even though Annas was deposed as high priest more than 15 years before, um, through his sons and his sons-in-law, we see that he's kept his fingers in the affairs of the priesthood so that Luke still calls Annas the high priest. But he is not running this little trial is he? Jesus is. It is Jesus who calls that officer on the carpet, essentially, after he strikes him. 
And neither the, the officer nor Annas have any response to Jesus. I, I would think that Annas is probably a little taken aback by Jesus' manner here. Um, if you got called into the high priest as, as a trial in the middle of the night, I think most people would be kowtowing before him and pleading for mercy. But that's not what we have going on here at all. It's important for us to remember that Jesus' life and ministry is not spiraling out of control on his way to the cross. He is laying his life down voluntarily. As he himself said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is in charge of this trial. And Annas, he can only pass him on to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But before we go to that second interrogation, we need to notice a second thing about this first interaction with, with Annas. Um, Jesus is revealing his identity here. And he does it amazingly throughout all of these trials um, on, this, on this dark night. You, you can hear echoes of Isaiah's messianic language in the words Jesus chooses, the few words he chooses to speak, you hear the echoes of the prophets. Surely the high priests heard it. For instance, Isaiah, he says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, I the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And again, just a bit later, Isaiah would say, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Can you hear the echoes of the prophets in what Jesus is saying? The few words he chooses to say echo of the Messiah in this midnight trial of Jesus. And it sounds in his response to me, almost as though Jesus is saying to these people, if you want to know more, talk to my disciples. Talk to the ones who've heard me teach. They can tell you who I am. And it feels to me like Jesus is leaving the window open for some who are there at this trial and many of these trials, men like perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the council. He might have been here. Is Jesus leaving the window open even for his accusers to believe? It is the way of sorrows. It is also the way of love. And what does Jesus get in return? He's slapped in the face. He's bound. And he's sent to his next interrogator. And he does not resist. He says, I could call 12 legions of angels, 50,000 plus angels I could call. They're at my disposal, but he does not resist. He submits to this unofficial priest and his midnight interrogation because Jesus is being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the high priest, or becoming to, obedient rather to the point of death, even death on the cross before this high priest. Now, it is before Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, 
that Jesus' second interrogation takes place. As, as Matthew tells it this way in Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. We saw this last week. As far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And I don't know about you, as I start reading the accounts of these trials, there's something about these trials that's not right. I mean, they're taking place in the middle of the night. False witnesses are being produced. Beatings are involved. Even though they're unofficial, you get a sense that there's a rush to judgment. And that judgment in this case is most serious. It's death. It's capital. And yet, Jesus is silent before his accusers. But even his silence is echoing the messianic prophecies from long ago. Maybe you remember Isaiah 53 where it says, Of the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Even Jesus' silence is declaring to those who are there who he really is. Matthew continues, he says, The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's interesting. The high priest says, if you are the Son of God. The, the last person to put that question to Jesus in this gospel was the devil himself. And Jesus simply replies, you have said so. It's an odd, odd response, but clearly his enemies and Jesus himself, I believe, intend this to be an affirmation of what was said about him. He is owning up here to being the son of God, but the expression is a troubling one, especially for Caiaphas. See, Jesus has used this expression before on this night, before the trials. He used it in the upper room. And in that room, Jesus had just informed his disciples that there's a traitor in their midst. And so the disciples are taking turns coming to Jesus asking him, is it me? Is it me? And then it's Judas' turn. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. You have said so. It's a confession that speaks truth, but it's also a confession that brings judgment. Professor Dale Bruner says that three times in this gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses this idiom, that's what you say. He uses it to Judas, 
at the Passover interrogation, here at the high priest's interrogation, and finally at Pilate's interrogation. And by giving these three replies to the three great unbelievers, a disciple, a Jew, and a Gentile, the gospel is saying one more time that the whole world stands under judgment. And that's important to remember. The whole world stands under judgment for the death of Jesus. Historically, the church has fallen at times into horrible anti-Semitism where we've persecuted the Jews because they were the ones that were responsible for the death of Jesus. And if you read those tri- the trials we're reading today, you cannot come to that conclusion that they solely are, are responsible for the death of Jesus. There's plenty of guilt for the death of Jesus to go around to us all. And so there's no basis for any racism or anti- anti-Semitism here in this passage at all in any way. But by his own words, Jesus lays claim here to the title, Son of Man, which is a title that implies his role of judge. And by his adversary's words, he reveals himself to be the Son of God and the Christ. There's this amazing portrait of Jesus that's emerging even from the trials. And the high priest then, Matthew says, tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? The thing is, the high priest, Caiaphas the high priest, is right. These are blasphemous words that Jesus is speaking, unless they are true. And the question, of course, is what if they're true? What if these are words and deeds of God? Then what? And Jesus is beaten and mocked again, and we hear echoes of the prophets yet again, that passage from Isaiah, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. So we have the exalted Son of God, the Christ the Son of Man, and he is enduring these trials because of his trust in his Father and his love for you. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We move now to the third trial. It takes place before a group of Jewish leaders known as the Council. You may have heard them referred to as the Sanhedrin or the Great Sanhedrin. They were like the Supreme Court of Israel. And they made up 70 men, likely plus the high priest. And the court convened daily in the temple except for festivals and on the Sabbath. And they were the ones to whom all questions of law were finally put. And so Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, now stands before the most powerful court in the land. This should be interesting. Watch what happens, Luke's telling, in verse 66 of chapter 22. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But... 
From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And this more official trial here yields the same basic result. Jesus is again laying claim through his adversary's words to being the Christ and the Son of God and and the exalted Son of Man who's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming in the clouds, Jesus says. And again, we hear echoes of ancient scripture that are prophesying this and they're coming true in Jesus. Psalm 110 says that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And and Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so this exalted son of man, the son of God himself, now submits to a council of mere men without protest or without defense because he is trusting his father and he is loving you. He is being found in human form. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Luke now takes us from the third trial to the fourth, from his interrogations by the Jewish leaders, now to Roman. Luke 23, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Now, they had been down here in, at the high priest's residence, and now they've traveled through the temple, likely, where they met with the, the council. And now they may have traveled over to the fortress or perhaps down here to Herod's temple where Pilate's praetorium or his residence probably was. And that's where this next trial takes place. Pilate was the Roman governor or overseer of the predominantly Jewish region of Judea. And he had financial administration, the collecting of taxes, things like that. He also had supreme judicial power. And he, he was in office for a good 10 years throughout the entire ministry of both John the Baptist and Jesus. We read in verse 2 that they begin to accuse, the Jewish leaders begin to accuse Jesus before Pilate, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute or to pay taxes to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. The Jewish leaders now bring remarkably political charges to their Roman overlord. And again, it's with those sobering words that are reserved to confirm statements from the likes of Judas and Caiaphas that Jesus tells Pilate, you have said so. And this time it affirms Jesus' title as the King of the Jews. And it's a title, you remember um, when the Magi came trying to find Jesus when he was born and they said, we are looking for the King of the Jews. It's a title that they used. It's a title that will also be used by soldiers to mock Jesus when they put that crown of thorns upon his head. And while he hangs on the cross, he'll be mocked saying, if you're the King of the Jews, save yourself. But supremely, this is Pilate's dilemma. He needs to know, is this a rival king to Caesar or is it not? 
It's interesting, Pilate adopts this as kind of his personal title for Jesus, um, such that when, as you're going to see next week when Carson teaches us, uh, when he says, do you want to release Jesus or Barabbas, he calls Jesus the king of the Jews. And then when Jesus is nailed to the cross, this fascinating revelation happens from Pilate. In John 19, they crucified Jesus with him, two others on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And that inscription read this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Pilate was thorough. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So it's interesting. There's a, when I read this typically, I've always thought, well, Pilate is really sticking it to the Jews here. Um, he's rubbing their nose in it. But there's another strain of thought that runs throughout church history. You find it in the language of St. Augustine who wrote um, in the 6th century. And he says, when Pilate wrote on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, he really meant it. Augustine says, it could not be torn from his heart that Jesus really was the King of the Jews. And even in our day, the Orthodox Church of Ethiopia has a feast day set up for St. Pontius Pilate and his wife. Could it be that Pilate came to believe what he posted? Could it be that Jesus is even reaching out in grace and love to his accuser? Look at the interaction between Jesus and Pilate. It's fascinating. It's different than the others. In John 18, Pilate entered his headquarters again. He called Jesus and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Do you say this of your own accord, Pilate? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world, Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone Pilate, who is of the truth, listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And as I read this account, it almost seems like Jesus is probing Pilate to see what he really believes. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Jesus closes this interaction with these words, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And D.A. Carson says that there's an implicit invitation in Jesus' words. The man in the dock invites his judge to be his follower. 
to align himself with those who are of the truth. And as you'll see in much more detail next week, Pilate is going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to Jesus and to the Jews and to Jesus and the Jews. He knows Jesus is innocent and yet fearing the pressure from the Jews to deal with their problem for them, um, he's torn. But you can tell he senses something is wrong with this trial. Something is wrong with these accusations. Something is amiss here. Something's not quite right. From from the get-go, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, John says. And it was early in the morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. The Jews would not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. It's fascinating, it's ironic, probably beyond ironic, that the Jews who are concerned about being defiled by Pilate so that they miss the Passover feast have the Passover lamb, as Paul calls him, standing right in front of them and they cannot see him. And it's, you can sense that they don't even really believe their case. Pilate says, why do you bring a charge? And they say, oh, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't even have brought him to you. Just, just do what we want, Pilate. You can sense Pilate is desperately trying to find a way out, and he gets one when the Jews mention the word Galilee. In Luke 22, Pilate says to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And Pilate says, Galilee, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod just happens to be in town today. I'll send him to Herod. And this is what leads us to the fifth trial of Jesus, before Herod. So when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. So who is this Herod? You probably remember his dad, Herod the Great. He was the guy when Jesus was born who killed all the babies two years aged and under in, in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. That's his dad. But our Herod is the one who stole his um, half-brother's wife, Herodias, and married her. And John the Baptist stood before him and called Herod out on that act of immorality. You may remember that story. Well, he imprisoned John the Baptist. Herod did. And then he actually granted his stepdaughter, John the Baptist's head, literally on a platter because of her lewd dancing before him that pleased him so much. This is Herod before whom Jesus now stands. William Hendrickson advances a good theory as to why Jesus refused to speak at Herod at all. 
He says, there was a time when Jesus was silent before Caiaphas and before Pilate, but these silences were also accompanied by testimonies. In the case of Herod, it was different. He never heard Jesus say anything at all. The man had his full opportunity. He had been talked to and reasoned with again and again and again by John the Baptist, but he had ignored all these warnings. And even now, his only interest in Jesus was born of a perverse, contemptuous curiosity to see a sign. He received no answer, and he deserved none, Hendrickson says. So in Luke, the chief priests and the scribes stood by Herod, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And so this fifth trial before Herod, it ends with more of the same, right? Vehement accusations and mockery. And then a curious friendship forming between Herod and Pilate. And they would have heard echoes of Psalm 2, which reads, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. And Jesus endures it all silently in trust of his Father and love for you. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His sixth and final trial is back before Pilate again. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will, therefore, punish and release him. And Pilate is a man caught in the middle. He knows Jesus is innocent, and yet the Jews keep pressing him. Next week in chapter 19 of John, you'll see this. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so things are getting out of control for Pilate but they are not for Jesus. His garden resolve continues. You remember what he said to Peter in the garden? Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And his humble love continues. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in this longest and darkest of nights, in the midst of all these interrogations and trials, he's faced false accusations by false witnesses. He was, high priest tore his robe and said that he was a blasphemer. Even though Luke says, it's interesting, that they said many other things against Jesus and they were blaspheming him. He was declared to be one worthy of death on a Roman cross, declared innocent yet to be punished, Pilate said. 
He was subjected to beatings. He was slapped. He was spat upon. He was dressed in the royal garb of mockery. And he bore it all in humility. Without rebuttal. Without defense. In silence. Or simple humble acknowledgement of who he truly was. And he was alone through all this. He faced all six of these trials alone. Can you imagine how hard that would have been to bear? Have you ever been falsely accused? Somebody said something about you that wasn't true. Or, or maybe they just misrepresented something you said or even just misunderstood you. And you remember that feeling that wells up inside of you, how you want to defend yourself and make it right? Make sure they know that you are right? It is so incredibly hard in those situations not to fight back or at least go to great lengths to defend yourself. And yet somehow when that happens, when we yield to those inclinations, our orbit changes and we are no longer loving them, we are defending me. And Jesus refused to walk that path the path of self-righteous defensiveness because he trusted his father and because he loved you and me. He would stay on the way of sorrows all the way to the cross. He would stay on the way of love. And that's what we remember today as we approach this table this morning. The humble love of Jesus poured out for us and his invitation to us to follow in his steps. Paul writes about it in the passage we've been citing. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as we take the supper today, we'll take the supper in silence to remember the trusting, humble silence of Christ and how he loves us so. And so we remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood and it's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? So Jesus, as we walk with you, help us walk with you in humility, in suffering, in love, and how we cherish and remember together the depth of your love, that you would not stop at any trial along the way, you would not stop at the cross itself, but you would love us all the way to the end. And because of that, we remember you now and we worship you. Jesus, we love you. 
Help us love you all the more, we pray.
Your blood has washed away my sin.